On this week's second Bet the Process episode, we welcome in Joe Pita, author of a 2019 Masters preview and also author of Trading Bases to talk Masters. And you know he's done a lot of quantitative analysis of Augusta National. He gives us some of his picks. He talks about how to predict Augusta. And it's honestly a discussion that I, I really enjoyed. And then I give uh, Jeff asked me about some players and I give out some nuggets that hopefully might provide use, prove useful for people. So with that, let's restart the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome the to the second edition of our masters bonanza rufus obviously is is excited to talk about masters so we're going to do as much masters talk as we can and we're going to welcome in joe pita in about 10 minutes who wrote a book about the masters and is a he's like a famous baseball better right didn't he write a book about baseball betting he did it's called trading bases and i actually just ordered it and and i started reading it last week before i got too busy to continue but um yeah he he He's a trader and he got, I think he severely injured his leg. He got like hit by an ambulance and was out of commission for a while and decided to, you know, use his trading skills to bet on baseball. And you have a lot of people actually following his sort of, you know, he, he outlines a sort of um, top down approach to modeling baseball win probabilities, which I think some people on Twitter are now using and which is what got me interested in, in reading his book right now. What do you think about, like, uh, you've had, I've never heard you really talk about Joe Pita before until recently. So is is that why? Because people were talking about his baseball approach and you became interested in it or? Well, uh, you know, I, I've always heard good things about the book. I, I never read it, but, um, and then I saw he was, you know, he, he wrote a book on, on golf betting or on the masters and was talking more about golf betting and golf modeling. And I was like, who is this person? Like, and why are they trying to make everybody smarter at golf betting? Mm-hmm. So I figured you I never, need to figure out who... like that. You want people to stay off your lawn. Yeah. It's a nice lawn. I know it but is. I figured I need to sort of... So I ordered these books because I figured I need to know what the market is, what the market knows now, because what he, what he has informed people of. How, how much longer do you think that you'll have this sort of ridiculous advantage in golf? I don't know. You know, the funny thing is I don't feel like I have a ridiculous advantage. It's, you know, it's definitely, I don't know. I mean, when you look at my process, I feel like there's definite, there's definite areas in need of improvement and there's, um, you know, it's, it's tough, but, but, but my results have been consistent for 10 years basically. And so, well, I think the bigger know, thing think, to yeah. me, the bigger thing to me is, is with the way the market reacts to your betting in golf. Well, which is a real, which is a real, which is a real sign that you're, um, you're onto something, don't you think? Yeah, but it's it's not a huge market, Jeff, and I think that's that's both do you a think, blessing do and you a think curse. That, don't you think that it should become a much bigger market? Like betting on golf is like so fun. Yeah, no, I think it will be, and but but I, I don't think matchup betting, which is kind of what the golf market really is, is quite as much fun for the average fan because. 
And you know, what would make it more fun is if you could like, if matchups were between people that were in the same group all the time and you actually could watch just that group play around. Because if, if I'm, you know, if I have a matchup of like, you know, Xander Shoffley against like Francesco Molinari or something, and you know, they're playing in different groups and, you know, I'm not even getting to see most of their shots. I only see when they make a long putt or, or do something highlight. Yeah, but what about the dopamine of being able to like scroll through an app and look at your phone for that information? No, look, looking at the scores, it, it is fun to track. And, and I think, you know, I think a lot of the people in the sort of golf DFS world think that the sort of DFS golf sweats are a lot of fun because you're really are rooting against everybody that is not on your lineup. So you have like six people in a lineup and everybody else you want to, to do poorly. But personally, I think the, the the most fun golf sweat is is having somebody in contention on Sunday for an outright. Well, that's that's a sweat because it's almost always a big payoff, right? Yeah, and it's it's fun. I mean, you, your incentives are, are aligned with the golfer, and I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of drama to it. It's a slow. I mean, the reason off. that I the reason that I harass you so much for golf stuff is obviously because it's just so fun to bet on, right? It's, it's like. I'm not actually like that. I don't care that much about trying to make a lot of money. I just would love to have, you know, some slightly positive EV bets down on golf to be able to watch it and have something riding on it. That's fair. See, I, I do care about being able to make a lot of money on it. So, no, but that's, that's the it's difference. Your bread, it's your bread and butter, though, right? Like, right. by the time you pass anything along to me, it's usually like bled of any real value. So. But, you know, last year, for example, the market didn't agree with me on Bubba Watson and, and the market was, for the most part, right? I think so, I had one matchup that won against him, but I went like one and eight or something and lost six figures there. So without like giving up too much and, and we're going to interview Ruf, I'm going to interview Rufus for probably 15 to 20 minutes at least after the Joe Pita interview so you guys can stick around for that. But without giving away too much, do you... Do you think or or will you watch some of these markets that you've maybe already bet into that you've already moved? Will you keep an eye on them to see if they move back or do you, do you anticipate any of them moving back, I guess? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye on it. But, you know, with with so many matchups out there like this year, there's there's more matchups available than any other year. I can I mean, I, I think, the, you know, there are more the rotation is much bigger than any year it's ever been before for any tournament. So, you know, there were, I think. Um, one of the, I think over 200 matchups. So, you know, I could bet on or against anybody like 15 different, not anybody, but the top golfers, like 15 different ways, you know, against, I could bet, you know, 14 matchups on them against different golfers or something like that. So, so, so some mean, of the guys that you potentially wanted to fade were available to fade in many different matchups. Correct? Yes. But, but my concern now is like, so I could bet more on those. Um, I could have, to begin with, but I'm, I'm concerned with, you know, having too much exposure on, on one guy. Meaning like you still think there's value there or there were some matchups that you didn't actually bet because that you didn't expect them to be matchups. Well, no, no, no. I, I, there's ones that I didn't bet as much as I, like, I, I didn't absolutely limit bet everything here because I, I don't want my entire tournament to be literally based on whether right. one guy does well or not. I mean, and this is where, you know, we've talked about the Kelly criterion before, and this is the like one event where like is, you know, the masters is an event where I can actually get down quite a lot. And so, you know, it does, you know, I, I don't like last year, Bubba Watson was that example with, you know, six figures riding on the performance of one golfer. 
So it's, yeah, I don't want one guy to make or break my masters. Inevitably it's going to, there are a few people that will make or break my masters probably, unless everything else goes, you know, I mean, really right or really wrong, I guess. But, um, but I want to be as diversified as possible because it is just one event. It's not like I have any special magic for predicting the masters that I don't have predicting other events. If I could, I would bet more on, on regular matchups for other events but I mean, it's just like your average record, you know, when you talk to the professional better, they, they might say, oh, you know, it's for the Super Bowl, they're like, it's just another game. I'm not going to like suddenly bet a ton on this side because there's a bunch of value here. It's literally one game, just like any other NFL game. Well, it, it's tough, too, because of the fact that you can get a lot of money down. And I think that's one of the challenging things, right? Like in the NFL, it's such a liquid market that you can get a lot down there. But the edges in the NFL are so small that i mean i think they're small that it's it's almost like counter to what you should be doing right like if your yeah. biggest edge your biggest edges are often in these illiquid sports and so you know this idea that you bet more just because you can get more down is one of the most challenging things and i think like from a bankroll management standpoint it's pretty difficult to sort of figure out how to handle this yeah no was that a was that a showstopper no 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 i was i literally was just I had a test come in. Sorry. Am I, this it is like my interview from my betting with, partner. So, you know, I, I had to, I had to make sure it wasn't anything urgent. This is like my interview with Alan Boston, where he got a phone call during the interview and, and stopped for a minute and answered that phone call. <laughs> oh, True oh, story. Alan, it never happened. change. Alan should never change. Alan gave some good insight though, around Texas tech and Virginia. Yeah. So, I wonder how that conversation that we had last night is going to turn out. Cause I think we'd both had a few drinks in us at that time. Oh yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, our midnight midnight little interview. I think and, you had a few more in me, but I was all right. I I had had yeah. a couple glasses of wine, so I was I was all right. Okay, so maybe one tidbit before Joe Pita comes on on the Masters is there one uh, guy that you like um, to overperform what the market thinks? Oh, actually, here's Joe. Uh, so we'll have to we'll have to wait on that. Um, we're going to welcome in Joe Pita, the man, the myth, legend. Um, legend. First thing I want to ask you is, where does Magic Rat come from? Uh, Magic Rat is a Springsteen reference. Uh, that is from a character in his song Jungle Land, and that used to be my poker handle uh, way back in the late 90s when the when I first started signing up for online poker. And uh, I just kind of stuck with it through uh, uh, through Twitter. You know, you know what's funny is I, I think of – like. When I was sailing as a kid in Optimus dinghies, these little teeny boats, I remember there was a girl who had a boat called Water Rat. And for whatever reason, when I see your handle, it makes me think of that. Optimus sailing as a 12-year-old. So so how do you, Joe, how do you compare the financial industry like trading to being a sports better? I mean, every people have always asked me like, oh, is you know, like, is it similar? Is is it the same skill set? Um, and I've never been a trader, so I don't really know for sure. Yeah, when I started in the business, which was 1995, it was absolutely the same skill set. Um, and in fact, the skill set really to the other side of the counter um, in that I was a NASDAQ market maker and that was, you know, making a two-sided market. And so you got very uh, comfortable or you had to become very comfortable um, taking either side of a uh, position, uh, regardless of how you leaned um so and it was it was doing that all day and so it was constantly having in your mind prices 
um, you know, because you traded the same book every day, whether it was organized by sector or, or something else. Those were your stocks to trade. And so really every day and, and at every point every day, you had a price in your mind where you were willing to buy and there was a price where you were willing to sell. Um, so it, it, it in that way and, and you were allocating capital all day. Um, so in that way and you were, of course, making decisions based on incomplete information. Right. I mean, that was. Uh, a large part. So there was a lot of psychology going into it, kind of understanding um, the madness of crowds and, and markets. And so it was, I think it was a a natural similarity then. These days, and this has been true for probably the last five to 10 years, uh, that job is long extinct. Um, traders now simply execute. Um, 20 you know, five years ago when I started, um, traders were a P&L uh, station, and they were expected to be a profitable part of whatever organization they were in. Now they're an expense center because um, you are simply executing. There is uh, machines have taken over the role of market making, um, and you can never, you know, it's not a video game anymore. You can't out-execute, you know, the flash boys. Um, so that in that way it's changed, but if you are in often, if you're still in the financial industry, you, you still hopefully are thinking about things like making decisions with incomplete information, um, and understanding that anything should be bought or sold at different prices. Um, so I think that kind of training is still useful. So, but do you think that fewer people actually have that kind of training and can actually think that way? It's just think probabilistically and think, you know, as you said, be able to make those sort of decisions and, and judgment calls with incomplete information. It seems to me though, well, yes, cause I don't think you get that training, you know, like that professional training. But on the other hand, I think that there are people who are analytical now have outlets for it. Uh, that doesn't have to be their job, right? I mean, it's, there are probably so many more model builders and just people that can exercise this analytic um, you know, if they if they are good at critical reasoning analytically, they can find outlets for it. I don't. I can't really think that I could have found an outlet for it without uh, the financial industry in in the early 90s. Um, you know, maybe some hobbies, you know, existed like that. But I I think there's a there's a larger pool of people who think analytically. Um, but on the other hand, allocating capital is an entirely different skill. Uh, from, you know, that that can change things. So that's you know, kind of fascinating. I don't, I don't know if you guys know that. I don't even, Rufus, if you know this, like I, I used to be a trader. I was an options trader. I traded right on the SIBO. Um, and I think you're right. Like at that time, a lot of us that thought probabilistically or were interested in that world would go into trading. And now that's not so much the way. So where are the, where do you think those people are going now that, like are interested in this obviously there's been like this influx of like poker and dfs and those types of things but none of those are like what i would call highly liquid scalable markets so where do you think those types of people are going now yeah that's a good question you're right about the you know highly scalable and liquid a lot of people want to strike out on their own but uh you're right um I'm not sure. I, I don't have maybe I'm maybe I'm too far removed now, you know, 20, 25 years removed from the sort of graduate uh, demographic now uh, to really know that that's 
that's a great question because I'm not sure, you know, that job for me and, and maybe it was for you too was just a perfect marriage of personality, you know, uh, skill um, that, you know, that could have existed. And I, I don't, I don't know if that would exist for me now. Interesting. Um, Rufus, you want to get into the, so, so I didn't know you had written a book on golf. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the golf uh, the golf book came out of really came out of the baseball book. I, I wrote Trading Bases. It came out in 2013, and at some point over that first year, I was on a promotion tour, and I ended up on stage with some some you know some great thinkers. Michael Mobison was on stage, um, and they had some other. Uh, in fact, Michael Mobison actually organized it through the Santa Fe Institute, and he got a number of different uh, sports analytics, uh, thinkers up there. And I was up there for baseball and there was a professor named, uh, professor Mark Brody, um, from Columbia. And he gave his talk on golf and he talked about how he had created the strokes gained benchmark for working with the PGA tour and their data. And the story was just kind of interesting how the PGA tour had had this, They'd been lasering every shot for a decade, and they didn't know exactly what to do with the data, and they turned it over to Professor Brody, and, and he went to work. And, and like I say, he, he is the Bill James of, of golf analytics in, in the creation of strokes gained. And I, I, you know, I listened to him, and I, I kind of filed it away and thought that might be interesting to explore. And then last year, I, I started hearing a little more about it. And then last year, I decided, you know what? I, I took a look at it, and I said, Man, this re- this might be what it would have been like to write about baseball in the mid '90s. Like it's a green field of opportunity. There's not a lot of people doing it, and I can sort of see where I think this is going and where it should be going. And and I know the roadmap because I know what what how baseball developed. So I started. I put down all the baseball spreadsheets, and you know, with a full time job, you have time for one hobby. And I dove into the golf and. Fortunately, and I was having fun, and, and, and I thought I was creating some great databases and, and knew I, I thought there was some stuff to write about. And then I stumbled across a pristine data set from the Masters that nobody had ever, I don't think, really knew existed, and nobody had certainly ever analyzed or written about it. And I was like, oh, boy, this is a book topic because everybody loves the Masters, and this has been one of the holes in the analytic um, work in golf is, is any deep dive at the Masters. Uh, so I was like, there's my book. And uh, that, that's how it came about. So how did you end up getting a hold of that data set? So there was a, uh, the, the data for all the PGA Tour analytics comes from the PGA Tour. As I said, they, they uh, laser uh, every course with a lot of volunteers and they can measure essentially the location of any, any ball within, you know, I think a foot when it's in a fairway. Uh, and an inch when it's in the green. So, but they don't run the four majors. Um, so that's always sort of been an annoying hole in the strokes gain data is that it never includes any of the majors uh, because the governing bodies of the majors don't let the PGA Tour put their equipment there. And the same was true with the Masters. Well, as I was going through some old, uh, the Masters website last year and kind of looking for some old data from the tournament, 
I found this thing called the track function. And on the track function, you can follow a guy around the course, essentially, uh, one of your favorite players. And as I was looking at it, I'm like, wait a minute. It says, you know, the shot was 175 yards from the pin, traveled 212 yards, and, you know, finished 18 feet from the hole. And I'm like, that's the, that's the you know, that's the strokes gain underpinning, you know, for the – and – I started realizing they've got this for every shot in the tournament um, because it's not the PJ tour, but it's actually IBM that uh, gathers the data for the masters and they just use it sort of for, like I say, for this track function. So I decided to download all, well, not download, but actually, uh, cause I, I couldn't scrape it just the way it was organized. Um, I actually input all 20,000 plus shots into a spreadsheet uh, for all 87 golfers at the tournament last year. And once I had that in spreadsheet form, now I can actually work with it as a database and start to overlay the strokes gain um, concepts uh, on it. And uh, out popped, hopefully, what is some fascinating stuff to read. And it was certainly fun to discover. That's that's fascinating. That's really interesting. So you, you, were, you basically, you just scraped it off the website? Yeah, again, it wasn't a scrape. It was uh, a it was an input. Um, but yes, that it really? came from the website and it disappears after you know six or nine months. Um, it took me about three months to do it. Uh, so you and manually I, did this. I manually did that. Yeah, it was like I say, it was twenty thousand four hundred plus uh, shots. Oh my um, goodness! And was was anybody um, has anyone at the Masters? Uh, have you talked to anyone there? I actually had a meeting last year with a bunch of the people that are sort of like the main organizers and the guy that runs their digital and whatnot. So I'd be curious to see, like, have they had any reaction to it? Well, I was, I did not want to reach out to them until I had finished the job. Frankly, once I got started, um, I was afraid of it being interrupted. Uh, so I did I reach out smart to move. smart. That's very smart. Cause yeah. Yeah. And, and I did versus... read their use terms actually pretty clearly said that scraping was not, legal, but I think that's boilerplate on, on many websites. Um, but in any event, I, I, yeah, knowing, you know, how they are, and certainly there was nothing trademarked or copyright that, and nothing in the book. I made sure there's no logos, no, nothing like that in the, uh, uh, in the book. Um, so I did reach out to them afterwards. Now I, it was a generic sort of a webmaster at, uh, you know, Augusta uh, or masters.com. I never heard anything back. Uh, certainly, the book has been a a pretty decent success this year, and uh, within it, it took until about the last two weeks. It, the first two months, the gamblers and the DFS people found it, um, as you figure they would. Uh, it, I think it sort of penetrated the regular golf uh, world within the last week or two, uh, because I've started to hear from some people within, you know, they clearly aren't gamblers or, or DFS people, so. I will write to the Masters again this year. Um, for one thing, I know the data exists. From what I can tell, the track function started in 2015. So there must be three other years somewhere in a warehouse. <laughs> um, so I would, you know, I'd love to talk to them and, and see if we could, uh, um, you know, see if there's, if we could do something together. So I, it has to be a little challenging just given that, I mean, you, you do have the, you can, you can see, you know, the distance of a shot and where it ended up, but you can't actually, you don't have the X, Y coordinates specifically um, or the, you know, the, the slope of the green or the, the contours of it that you do with the regular strokes gain with the regular shot link data. 
Well, that that's right, except the shot link data does not incorporate, while they have that, um, in coming up with the baseline uh, stuff, um, they do not distinguish that. You know, for instance, every six-foot putt or eight-foot putt is graded the same um, on its, you know, sort of the raw baseline calculation of, of strokes gained. Uh, so in that sense, um, what I find out is, and, and this was sort of fun, you, you know I'm overlaying the uh, the baseline PGA Tour stuff for everything, and that then allows me to go and say, and of course because the elegant nature of strokes gained is everything adds to zero, um, so it allows me, once I put the baseline stuff in there, it then allows me to go to every hole um, and every drive, every approach, and every green, and knowing, you know, figuring out what adjustments I have to make to scale it back to zero, you quickly find out, okay, you know, 15 of the 18 greens are tougher on the PGA Tour, uh, or excuse me, at Augusta than on the PGA Tour. Only three driving holes are tougher than the PGA Tour. Uh, and that comes, you know, uh, you get some fascinating sort of discoveries uh, from that. That's very interesting. Okay, so turning towards more specific um, preview of, of this year's Masters. Um, so... What do you? What did you find is the most important skill to winning at Augusta? I know that everybody says you know you don't have to be accurate off the tee. Of course, I mean look at Phil Mickelson. Um, but I, I read today that Fred Couple says it's a second shot course, and obviously putting you have to putt well to to win. But you know it's I've mentioned before that it's it's very hard to predict putting um, based on other uh, tour stops. Um, it's hard to predict putting at the Masters. Yeah, I think all of those are true, and I think the the iron player, the as couple said, the second shot, the approach, is almost certainly if you wanted to have one elite skill to bring to Augusta, that I mean that's important in in all events, right? Uh, but it's it probably takes on extra importance at Augusta. I'd certainly like to see a few years of strokes gain data to really sort of look at the distribution of the skills versus a normal tour stop. But I can look at last year and say the guy that was the best off the tee was astoundingly good off the tee, and it was Bubba Watson. He drove the ball as accurately. Um, yeah, I always think this is a good analogy for people who don't really like numbers. Well, last year Bubba Watson was as accurate as Barnard Longer, and he was as long as Roy McElroy, and that's a pretty great combination. Uh, and in doing so, he picked up three strokes on the next best guy off the tee, which was John Rahm, closely followed by Rory. And that's you don't usually see that kind of spread off the tee. I mean, that's how good Bubba was last year. Um, and yet, you know, he, he had a decent tournament, but he wasn't really a factor on the weekend. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the, the guy that was best uh, with the irons was Jordan Speed. You know, we know he lost by one stroke, and if he hadn't bogeyed 18, if he hadn't hit the trees with his drive, uh, on 18, I think his drive on 18 went about 140 yards once it clipped the tree. Um, you know, he pars 18, he's, he's probably in a playoff with Reed. So it, it, it and, you, and you look at, at all the guys that were approached, they all sort of moved up the leaderboard. Um, and yes, putting, you know, Patrick Reed was very hot with a flat stick last year. Uh, so I, I would agree that that's, you know, you want to be a good putter. And maybe you, if you were Bryson DeChambeau, who was, I think, fifth worst, putting last year uh, that might make you happy because if there's going to be regression there uh the other two skills uh looked pretty good they were just dragged down by poor putting last year 
So here's the question. I mean, you mentioned the approach thing, but I mean, just anecdotally, and then I'm, I'm, I have my spreadsheet in front of me too. I'm, I'm like, you know, Justin Thomas is a guy that it's probably the best, you know, best in terms of strokes gained approach, at least my numbers um, on tour. He hasn't played particularly well relative to expectation at the masters. Um, it's not, you know, can't, well, can't lay is not, a, well, Henrik Stenson, great iron player, you know, he, pretty middling right around expectation at the masters Keegan Bradley, excellent iron player as well. He has a very poor course history at the masters. Um, are those sort of exceptions or, um, yeah, you yeah. really hit the guys there. I would say, um, uh, you know, Stenson last year was the first year. I think people have waited so long for him to do well at Augusta and sort of last year was the first year you're right about Justin Thomas. And I think when you look about, when you look at Thomas's round by round, it looks even worse. He just, he had one tremendous round. I think that he gained 7.6 strokes might've been the second round last year. Um, but you, so you sort of, you know, you look at his sort of success rate. I think he's played 12 rounds there. I think he has five rounds of negative uh, uh, strokes gain and, and then seven positive, but the vast majority of the positive all occurred in one round. Uh, so you're right. I, I think you've just, you've picked some guys there that maybe haven't tamed the greens there. And, and like I say, we know with more data, uh, strokes gain data, but I think I'd counter with saying, obviously, Tiger Woods is as incredible as he was. I think we kind of acknowledge now his iron play was underrated because it was the best in the world. Um, I, you know, just, Justin Rose has a tremendous track record at Augusta and is, is certainly going to you know, always be near the top of those uh, um, approach uh, ratings. Um, you know, Sergio even, right? It's always been yeah. the flat stick that Sergio's problem. And, and uh, you know, so I think you can find guys. It, it, it certainly takes a complete game uh, at the Masters. And it, it is interesting that the guys that don't, more than any other course I find, uh, uh, performance is correlates more from year to year on this course than it does on other courses. You know, I found the same thing. My analogy is, you know, to basically it's like the Wrigley Field of golf courses in terms of like the effect of the effect of wind at Wrigley Field is so far off like um, any other ballpark. And the predictiveness of course history at the Masters is kind of the same thing. What's... Yeah, it's going to be fun. I, I, uh, I, it, it, the one nice thing too is at least if you have, a, because there's so many great players, right, in in this tournament, um, if you have at at least a, you know, something to guide you, uh, at least it gets you started, and it helps me um, because of that sort of, uh, for, you know, it does help me start to eliminate some guys, you know, because you got to call it somewhere. Yeah. So do you so do you bet on golf yourself or do you, or do you play DFS? I, I I've just I started DFS I, I funded an account um, and it was at at uh, Fantasy Draft I don't know why I did that I, for some reason I thought that was the go to golf site like 15 months ago when I started digging into the data and I thought you know what I better open up a a, a fantasy thing and and just start tracking some stuff that way um, so I that's the one site that I've played on. Um, and I did not realize at the beginning of that game how important, and I'm not sure if all the formats are the same, uh, but really understanding the importance of, of having, you know, five guys make the cut um, and understanding that's the first. So, for instance, I have done better in the no-cut events 
uh, I seem to thrive in the WGC events um, or the Tournament of Champions or, or someplace where the, those games where there's no cut. Otherwise, um, you know, get, getting everybody through the cut line is, is seems like it's the first part of the game. Um, and then I do bet on golf, too, and I have sort of turned my – and as I tell people, um, I spend almost no time on the futures. I will for the Masters purely for entertainment. I hate the embedded juice that's in there, and, and it, it, I find it unconscionable, especially on an event like the Masters. Uh, so to me, the money is in the matchups, whether it's 72 or 18 holes. Yeah, and I remember you you saying something about this on Twitter, and and I kind of came back at you a little bit, but I, I, you, you do make a good point there. I mean, you're, you're um, especially someone that's you know, you're not you're not going to get a lot of volume down on on the outrights either. But I, I want to push back a little bit on the notion that there is a, there is a ton of juice, right, in terms of the over round, but it's not a two way market, um, right? And so the books aren't able to balance anything, and, and you don't have to, and they're going to overprice the favorites generally, which you know, that adds a lot to the over round. Um, and depending on where you go, like a bet fair, you know, you can get guys at a thousand to one. Like I remember back in, uh, I think it was 2012 when Ted Potter won the Greenbrier. I got him, um, I had him at, you know, for $20 at a thousand to one. And, and so someone obviously was wagering 20,000 to win $20. They just wanted, you know, you know, they, they wanted a free, you know, they won some grocery money, I guess. They thought it was a free, you know, free, but you know, because you have guys like that every week though. So there are, I, I found that, I mean, you, you can kind of cherry pick um, which guys are mispriced. Yeah, it is true. It, there, you're right, Ruth. And, and for sophisticated people such as yourself, that is true. And in a place like Betfair, you know, that you, you probably can, you're, you're, there's probably a greater chance of finding some value. As I kind of write about golf betting as a primer though, I'm I'm still kind of disappointed at how many people turn to the futures markets to express their thoughts on who's under or overvalued when to me there's a lot better return on capital waiting for them in in the matchups if they're you know if they're really putting the uh, uh, the work in. Um, so, and I, I understand the lottery ticket, you know, nature, you can't get, you know, it's, it's fun to have, uh, something that, that, that can JB Holmes at, at the Genesis this year was a, a great example. And, uh, especially if you were a horses for courses guy. Um, and so, I mean, I certainly get it. I just, maybe I get a little pedantic when I write, but I, I, I do, you know, I kind of want people to take away that when a market has that much juice, um, your default setting should be that there's not value. Um, and, and I guess sort of try to prove it the other way. No, I, I think that's a very good point. For the average recreational better, you know, you're going to lose more quickly. And even for me, I mean, given my, my, my actual returns on outrights have lagged way below my expectation over the years, which has not been the case in, in the matchup stuff. But um, you, you mentioned JB at, um, at Riviera, and I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, there's this narrative that, that Riviera is the most similar course to Augusta. Have you looked at anything like in terms of course similarities? I have not. I have not done that work or even dug into it. I see people say that, and sometimes I, I, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's counterintuitive or um, if it's – I mean, and that's something that – generally people smarter than me are going to be better at either proving or disproving. But I remember hearing somebody say, 
oh man, when you you know the TPC, you got to be looking what happens at at Wyndham for and and that just that is mysterious to me. I I I, I kind of get the concept, um, but uh, you know, you tell me, do you feel like that's one of those things where if you dig far enough, you know, if if you search hard enough, you'll find something that that appears similar. Uh, yep. Or do you find that there is some actual help to, the, to that sort of thinking? So, let's, you know, about five or six years ago, I dug deep and literally had created a matrix, basically, of the similarity between every course, you know, every year and, and tried to figure out how predictive it was. And, and the answer is it's mostly noise. Like there's there's some predictive value, but not enough for me to actually justify running that. Like, you know, maybe one course gets 5% more weight than it should. But like, basically, I'd say like 90% of courses are going to be between like, you know, plus or minus 4% of the weight of an average course in terms of predicting this other course. So, um, so to me, I think it makes me feel right. good. Yeah. Because when I, when I hear that, I think of the financial industry sort of example is, you know, the kind of the warning is, you know, don't major in a minor. Um, that it, it's, uh, it, it's usually that kind of work. I just am suspicious that it has the payoff. Um, so it's kind of sounds like you're get you got to the same place by yeah. actually doing the work. <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree. Cause I was, I was like, you know, I, I was looking for these, um, ways to sort of improve. And, and I think it's better, it, it's more important to be able to do the big stuff well. And, and there, you know, and I think that if you sort of added some components of maybe like geographic location and grass type and stuff to that, you could probably find something, but at the same time, like, I think largely when you hear these narratives, like, you know, Keith Mitchell, you know, Keith Mitchell won because he, you know, he likes Bermuda greens or, or, but that narrative comes out after he has a really, really good putting week after he'd been putting really, you know. Yes. And, and I always say, well, okay, I'm, you, you might be right, but how can you, I need you to tag everybody who's, you know, who's uh, on all their courses um, to tell me that for sure. Cause you're right. The narratives generally emerge afterwards. So, so where do you stand on the sort of recent form versus course history versus course fit debate? Um, I guess both at Augusta and sort of in general. Yeah, I for every tournament I have some weighting on on course history, um, and I'd say it ranges from TPC Sawgrass where I have the lowest, um, where that's the lowest weighted factor, um, and uh, all the way to Augusta where I have that as you know having the most weight of any event uh, during the year. Um, and as far as form, uh, I am fiddling with, with a couple different things in terms of, I use for long-term form, I use a hundred rounds. Um, and it, it's, uh, um, so, and then within that, I overweight to some degree current form um, and sort of defining current form as, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 rounds. Um, and so that and the nice thing, and I, I think this is a positive, um, it doesn't, guys, it, it takes a while to move a guy. Um, so if somebody has really made the leap, I'm going to be behind the curve. Um, but at the same time, I think I avoid a ton of chasing. Um, but I cannot say, Rufus, and again, this is where People are better at me than this. Um, I'm doing it by sort of running concurrent models and with some different weighting and really trying to measure what my forecast error is uh, in outrights versus, you know, sort of the market. Uh, and that's how I'm sort of, yeah, exactly. Because, well, what I'm really uh, trying to do is, so essentially I have power ratings, 
right? And, and I sort of introduce it in the book. And the whole idea is that, you know, if you're 0.3 stokes better than someone, the proper, um, you know, in a 72-hole matchup, the, the indifference point should be like minus 130. And if you're half-stroke better, it's about minus 150. Yeah, I, d- um, I didn't like that you gave away, like, you know, you made it easier for people to price these matchups. Yeah, or sort of reverse engineer it too, right? That that's or or um yeah, and and yeah, that's you know, that's me. Yeah, but, um but that's uh so that's what that's how I'm trying to really measure my forecasting error is what sort of weighting is coming up with the um you know, is reducing that that forecast error. So but you you said forecast error with outrights, why not just look at forecast error with strokes gained? Yeah, um it, it's funny you say that because I am always looking at it from a a um, relative standpoint. Um, I'm not sure, and, and maybe this is the other reason I haven't been attracted to really trying to really model outrights. Um, I'm not sure that I've got the uh, – I'm not sure that I would do that right uh, in terms of really trying to sort of get the distribution down of what somebody that I think, um, you know, I just can kind of use that same, you know, three standard deviation that, that's sort of the tour average um, on, you know, someone that I expect to be two strokes better than the average guy. And I, I don't really, um, it, it's where I have really concentrated on at this point over the last year is, is comparing those guys relatively uh, as opposed to, you know, am I, uh, you know, my nailing there. Um, I guess what I should be doing is going back and saying, okay, six months ago, this is where I was projecting, you know, DJ strokes gain to be how have his next 12 rounds played out. Um, But I just, I haven't started, I haven't graded stuff that way. Well, well, don't get started too, too quickly. (laughs) Um, So I I found the, you know, in my experience, the hardest two things to predict um, are, basically guys variance, um, which guys gonna, you know, just, you know, which guys are consistent versus which guys aren't and being able to sort of predict that moving forward and how to sort of wait a, a really bad round, for example. Um, and sort of going along with that is, is the clutch factor. Do you think those are things that can be modeled? Are you able to model them well? Um, or do you think that's sort of, there's some sort of limitations in terms of um, being able to sort of, use analytics to, to predict that kind of thing? My, my, my instinct is, is uh, um, that it's, it's tough to model, that I'm sure it exists, but that it's tough to model. But I will say, um, and, and this is a little probably to what you're talking about variants, I think one of the most interesting, and, and this is, you know, I plan to make this a, a sort of centerpiece uh, essay someday, but I find the careers of Jim Furyk and Phil Mickelson to be endlessly fascinating to compare and contrast. Um, because if you kind of look at their 10 year peak, uh, uh, Phil has obviously been better longer, both earlier and then later. Um, although it's been nice to see Furyk have a nice, you know, uh, winter spring this year. Yeah. Um, but if you kind of look at their 10 year peaks, maybe 97 to 08, I guess a little more than 10 years. If I cover up the names, and just sort of look at things on a round-by-round uh, round basis, you can't tell me who the better golfer is. Um, and that astounds people because we know that Phil has achieved a lot more than Jim Furyk. But 
you know, really if you match up all the tournaments they played in together and then even start breaking it down by rounds, it's essentially a toss up as as to who's who's gonna win. Um so at first I thought, I'm like, well that's all luck. Like Phil is just lucky. Um that he has forty three wins and, and Furick only has, you know, I think 21, 23, something like that. Um, and, of course, one major versus, versus many. Um, but then I realized that, well, Phil has a larger standard deviation on his in his scores, and it's it's a skill. Like, that is a it, – it, it is not – I don't think it's random. It's too persistent and consistent, and that must be a skill to his style that is conducive to winning tournaments – um, which you know might be the whole goal of of you know the the, the endeavor anyway. Um, so that I sort of have this idea of really studying standard deviation as a skill, um, but at the same time understanding that on a on a single shot, single hole, single round, uh, Jim Furyk. You know, like I said, I think I can make a very strong case that he is just as skilled a golfer as as Phil Mickelson. I agree. I don't know what your thoughts yeah. are on that? So, so I, I've bet on Jim Furyk way too many times in outrights, and you know he had that streak of, of ten straight events that he was leading after three rounds that he <laughs> did not win. And so, Jim Furyk and Sergio Garcia, and to a lesser degree, Paul Casey are guys Paul that Casey. I've <laughs> a lot of money at on outrights. And just because I found that, like, so overall, I mean, I do model the variance in, in Jim Furyk, he, the way he plays. I mean, if you look at it, he, he doesn't miss fairways. He hits a bunch of greens and he plays kind of this sort of safe conservative type game um, where he's not going to, he's, he's not going to make any unforced errors. He's going to, and if he, if he gets, if his ball striking is, you know, if his iron plays really good, he can hit it in close. And, and, you know, the funny thing is though, for someone that is such a consistent player and a low variance player, he owns two of the last three rounds in the fifties. To me, that's something that is completely like, yeah astounding yeah in fact his 59 is as i graded not the 58 but the 59 is the greatest single round of the tiger woods era um because of where it was done and against the field that was cog hill right i think that's where he shot the 59 it was in the b it was the early uh, bmw uh as it was moving around um and the field average that day i think was 71 um so it's and it was that is a great field uh, that was in that too because it was FedEx playoffs event. So yeah, that it is interesting, isn't it? Because he does seem to be a guy that can go low. Yeah, but but at the same time, he just he doesn't have the blow up rounds, and it seems like he plays too. Um, yeah. By the way, I just pulled this up. Um, I, I was quickly getting my database. Jim Fier, for, for me, I guess this is since '96. I have Furyk's round in the 2013 BMW. Which one was that? Was that Cockhill? Right. That was Cockhill. Yep. Okay. Yep. Number two, Adam Hadwin, Adam Hadwin, career builder. Uh, then Sung Kang at Pebble Beach in 2016. Yeah, okay. I, I was curious. Sorry. Um, so the clutch thing, though. I mean, that's that to me, that is one thing that I've really tried to – identified but it seems you know it's like a guy can can blow a bunch of tournaments or blow a tournament well i guess the best example is like kyle stanley you remember kyle stanley blowing tory pines in um 2012 i guess it was rippled 18 was it something like that yeah i had him at 150 to one and all he had to do he was in the fairway lying to 100 yards out all he had he could have putted and made and all he had to do was make a double bogey and win um and then he goes on like so he you know he collapsed 
um, he goes on and, and wins the next week when Spencer Levine, who I actually had at like even higher than 150 to one, blew a six stroke lead. So it's like there's this whole sort of narrative of being able to like learn how to win. But it seems like some golfers don't really go through that. They just win. And other golfers like Furyk, like seems like as they get later in their career, they learn how to lose. Yeah, it's, it's I remember Kenny Perry when he had his chance at at the Masters at 07, 08. I can't remember, but I remember he was so downbeat after and he said this is why I'll never win a major. Like I I don't have the mental game to close this out. And it was it was heartbreaking here, you know, the anguish he was going through. Uh, and that's why I say I think it's real. I actually think it's more real that guys sort of play beneath their baseline level than anybody actually raises their game. Um, but but again, but it's hard to it's hard to measure. Definitely, and, and well, remember Sergio once said that he was playing for second place. This was the Masters yeah. maybe five right. years ago, and then he ended up right. he ended up winning. But um, one more thing on um, before we get to some specific predictions, and then we'll let you go. But um, how do you? So this is something that. I've struggled with and, and is the match play event being moved to two weeks before the masters and, and how to value that. I mean, there is strokes gained data on that. You can reconstruct a guy's score, but, um, but just, but, but we all know it's a, it's a completely different animal. And so, and for most of these guys, that's their most recent event before the masters. Yeah. I don't use it. I just plain don't count the, uh, um, the uh, non-stroke play events. Uh, and whether it's to, uh, right. And I'm not happy about that either. And, you know, and I hear guys saying, well, they got, you know, three rounds of work and I'm, I'm really wondering how much, how effective that really is. Um, it's so, so yes, I, for me, it has, I, nothing about that week gets entered into anything I do. Um, you know, and maybe to my detriment. I mean, last year, I think Bubba won it and he was my biggest fade and, I ended up losing like six figures betting on Bubba or betting against Bubba. So um, I, I, I feel I'm, I'm slightly wary of that right now uh, with, with the guy that's going to be my biggest fade this year, having been a, one of the top finishers in uh, at the match play. So I'm glad, I'm glad you also, oh, I think, you know, I think we're fading the same guy then uh, as well. Um, and, and we're, I'll tell you what, we're getting good prices to fade them. Uh, if, if we're talking about the same guy, let's, uh, who are you talking about? Uh, the my paisano, paisano, uh, Francesco Molinari. Ah, uh, yes, 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 indeed. Okay, um, he is my huge fade. So I- I'm glad we're on the same page there. Who, who, yes. who else are you bullish and bearish on? Uh, well, I do. One thing I do like is, um, you know, if I were an odds maker, I would, with high conviction, think that of the of the trio of elite guys at the top of the the board. Um, I have pretty high conviction that Justin Rose should be the betting favorite. Uh, so I will express that in uh, outrights, you know, getting him as a dog to Rory, getting him as, uh, as, a, as a dog to a DJ. I'm very pleased with that. Uh, so that's sort of theme number one. Um, theme number two is definitely, yeah, the, my favorite fade was, uh, uh, was Molinari. Um, for the uh, – I'm also not betting on a guy. Let's put it this way. I'm not trying because of the course history at Augusta. I'm not trying to see around the corner. I am not trying to project JT or DJ 
playing in a way they haven't demonstrated before there. Uh, so that does leave me with guys that maybe are young but showed potential last year, the John Roms, uh, Tony Finau, although I'm not happy with his form the first no. three months, um, and, to- and uh, Tommy Fleetwood. You know, I certainly want to see if they can build, and I'm going to be betting on the fact that they can build on what they did last year. Well, Fleetwood, Fleetwood, I, I have him three strokes gained above expectation at Augusta. Did he only have play one year? Was it just last year for him? Uh, let me pull that up. I was thinking he had, may have had a second, but uh... and yeah, you know, you're right. Just Justin, I have him right about the same. And but Dustin, Dustin actually, I feel like has played pretty well there. Um, but you're right. Nobody compares to to Justin Rose there, unless uh, you go for right. The- and the way I look at DJ is, yeah, he's played he's played okay, but always below his baseline. Um, and I sort of think that Rory plays to his baseline. Um, so that's and and that's where I would you know. Uh, that that runs counter to the careers of Tiger, Phil, uh, Jordan, and you know Justin. Th- those guys uh, just do seem there's so- something about that course raises their baseline. Interesting. I actually have all like Rory and Dustin having performed better than their baseline. There, um, I guess we had different baselines for them, but. Um... So Tommy Fleetwood has played twice. Uh, he missed the cut in 17 uh, with a poor first round, uh, and then last year uh, picked up six strokes gained. So, do you mind? Um, so, what is the reason that you're so so against uh, against Mel- Molinari? Uh, just his one his his history there. He just has, and again, it's not that he doesn't come in this year with a higher baseline, uh, maybe than he has. Well, first of all, I actually don't think his baseline is that high, um, despite the fact that. You know he's got to win, and uh, um, and then had a showing at um, you know had a nice showing in the match play. Uh, so I think that you know when I look at every round that he's played um, on on PGA Tour, um, I think since the British last year, since the Open Championship last year, um, you look at all the WGC events. This is not a guy that I see with. Uh, I think he's overrated to begin with, um, and then I don't like his uh, course history here, which I'll. I'll pull up. Um, so I just, you know, whether or not he's at a higher baseline this year or not, it doesn't, he has not displayed um, a raised game here. And I think that from a narrative standpoint, it kind of makes sense in that he is somewhat shorter. And if he's got longer shots into these greens, you know, it, it's, it's harder. Um, it, it's harder because the greens may be big, but the actual targets are small. Um, so yeah, I look at I look at him. You know, he's he's got negative strokes gained at uh, yeah. for his career at uh, Augusta. Is that, that relative is, to the is that relative to the field in Augusta or relative to his expectation? No, that's relative to the field. So okay. he's got his for his career, uh, he's negative point two four strokes uh, gained in seven appearances and uh, twenty four rounds. Um, that is, you know. That's guys like Steve Stricker and Webb Simpson that you know took a long time till they ever turned positive at, at, at the Masters and were never really competitive. Have never really been competitive. I'm not going to bet on. I'm not like I say. I'm not trying to see around the corner here and projecting uh, him to do something that he hasn't done before. So the way he's priced sets up an attractive fade in my eyes. Yeah. So I do think the one thing with Molinari is for years, he was like Jim Furyk. He was short off the tee and super accurate and he's added distance. And now, I mean, he he's, he's yeah. 
less than a yard shorter in in terms of my numbers than than Patrick Reed, for example. And he's you know longer than Matt Kuchar, longer than Ian Poulter, you know, and uh, you know he's still shorter than most of the the like I guess his closest comp for me is Oosthuizen when you adjust for the courses they played in terms of driving distance, um, and and those guys like can contend. So the question is how much will that extra distance benefit him? Um, and I guess we don't know, right? Yeah, we, exactly. That's a great question. Um, I will say that of all those guys you mentioned, and it's it's hard to disagree with any of that, but he's priced higher than all of those guys, I think. Yeah. Um, I, so that, that's, you know, certainly that's a factor. And do you think that's sort of because of how well he, because of the attention he got from getting those wins, um, winning the British Open, and then he, he had that one two one, and then he also right. won this year. Um, where do you win? Yeah. Yeah. You know, even with his win this year, I'm just quickly looking up at the raw stuff. Um, he's got, you know, in 20 rounds this year, he he only has nine strokes gained, and that is despite a win. Um, so he's been negative in the in the uh, events he hasn't won. Now I I add another six and a half strokes of that for difficulty of field he's he's against. But my sort of baseline for him is is that he's about um, 0.8 strokes better than. Uh, um, you know, the average PGA Tour golfer, and that puts him right about at 50th. Uh, and this is just the 18-19 season. Um, so, Wait, so that includes you, you, including the wraparound, like the W, uh, the That's AFB right. It's CD. from, from poorly there. post-East like on. That's right. He, I don't think he played well in the uh, the WGC event uh, overseas. And and I think the players really hurts him too because, I mean, anytime you're like a tied, he was tied for 56th there, that's almost worse than missing a cut on the line, right? Because you have right, four, four, rounds, four rounds. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um. So, in your book, you have your. I mean, you your very early predictions. Um. You had Tony Finau as, as number one. I'm I'm sure he wasn't. You know, you wouldn't if you if you were booking bets off of this, you wouldn't have had him as the number one at the time. I'm guessing, but this is sort of a combination. Would I be right in saying this is a combination of of sort of sticking, putting something on the line while also um, trying to be realistic. Yes, it was. It was a it was a combination of looking at value, um, and it was a current projection, and then also trying to draw that line three months out too. Um, and that is one thing that changed with uh, um, uh, with Fino is that was an upward sloping line over a lot. Like I said, he was flashing best in the world skills right behind Dustin and DJ uh, all, or uh, Justin and, and, and DJ only he'd played twice as many rounds as them since, you know, in that, in that last six month period. Um, so I felt like I was sort of, I had the conviction of someone, you know, coming down the mountaintop with tablets. Um, I admittedly, I am in much more of a fetal position right now, clutching uh-huh. my futures <laughs> tickets. Um, he has his, his, his uh, form just, you know, the only way I can spin it from a narrative standpoint is to try to make myself and my friends feel better is now that he is rich and exempt, uh, he is simply working on his game <laughs> to thrive at the, uh, at the Masters and, and not really trying to uh, um, excel uh, at the weekly events. But, yes, clearly uh, I, you know, I'm not going to back off the pick because, you know, that that is my pick, and it is still my pick. I do not have the same conviction I did uh, on twelve thirty one. What what were the odds that you you bet him at? You know, uh, thirty five, and then as low as twenty five too. Okay, 
I and well, I, I have him as fifty to one right now. I mean, that's that's yeah, the price I make. He's he's only gotten cheaper uh, in you know since uh, I think when he teed it up at his first event in the calendar year nineteen uh, was at Torrey Pines and the Farmers, and I happened to be in Vegas that weekend, and he had dropped to twenty to twenty to one at, at most of the shops there. And yes, he has oh. only gotten that ticket has only gotten cheaper um, since then. Okay, so before you or before you go, I want or I'm going to see if Jeff wants Jeff has anything, but but I want to ask about two particular golfers that that are kind of fascinating to me. Um, the first being Brooks Kepka, who you know he's lost weight and his you know there's I don't know he was on some weird diet where he wasn't eating, um, but he seems to overperform in the majors in general. Like it's it's like he does you know he said he doesn't love the game of golf. You know he'd rather be a baseball player, but it, is he just, it, it seems like sometimes, you know, the narrative is he, he just doesn't care as much about the regular events. And, and then he, he does care about the majors and, and turns it on. Like um, what's, what's sort of your opinion of him for the masters? Yeah. If it weren't for that weight loss thing, which, you know, for a photo shoot, I, I that is that, that type of vanity worries me in, in you know, in terms of somebody's makeup. Um, that is, I mean, he would, there were, there are certain athletes in, in other sports that we could think of that would be absolutely drilled, um, you know, for his lack of commitment to his craft. Um, I look at his record though. And, and remember, I, I think I, I didn't point this out in the book, but I think I've pointed this out in, in some either articles or other podcasts. Um, he has never played the masters as a major winner. And now he has three majors under his belt um, because he didn't play last year. But his three appearances, he actually got better in each appearance. Like, he has a nice arc here, which is kind of telling you he does have, you know, his. you would think he's got the game for the place. And, you know, maybe he was learning a little bit each time. Um, it's just that he was under the radar all three of those times. I think he's not talked about enough. I will say that. Um, I, but the, yeah, the whole weight loss stuff and, and the reasons for it, that's just weird. Very weird. Um, Jeff, do you have anything you want to ask? Oh, wait, I have to, I, second golfer, Jason Day. Oh, without a doubt, the, has to be the, 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 the guy with the most elite skills and flashing them now, not being talked about. Like, I don't understand how he's in the thirties. Unless there's an injury. I mean, is it like, yeah, where do you see him listed right now? Um, I know he opened at 31. I make him 21 to one and, and I have a lot of matchup value on him, but at the same time, I don't want to, you know, there, there's an injury question mark there for sure. He has the, yeah. something in his, you know, vertebra. I don't know what, what exactly it is, but like a legitimate medical thing. Although, you know, um, I, I think the guy is seriously the, the biggest hypochondriac and, and someone I know inside the ropes kind of confirmed that he's always sick or injured or something. Um, but yeah. I have some bitterness over my uh, matchup plays with him uh, at the Arnold Palmer because, of course, instead of just dropping out before it started, he decided to play six holes and and make all those bets go live and then quit. Uh, which we we were on the same side there. Yeah, um, but yes, you know, I look at him and just you know, a neutral course. Um, you know, I have him right now rated as the fourth guy uh, on tour behind McElroy, Dustin, Justin Rose, and then and then Jason Day. Um, so, I mean, he's one of the few guys that, you know, has skills to be two strokes better than, than the average golfer. Uh, I, I do, I have just been figuring there, the, the injury must really be something because 
nobody's talking about him and, and he, he doesn't even seem to be getting a lot of action. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at his form recently, it hasn't been particularly good. I mean, he didn't play well at the match play. I, I don't believe um, he missed the cut at Valspar. He did play well at the players. Um, and before, you know, but he was on, he was on a really, really good run to start the year with, with top right. fives at, at Torrey Pines and at Pebble. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and that's where, you know, I look at 1819, if I just take the whole thing together, um, you know, and then add the, you know, the, so the strength of field adjustment, he gets over two strokes around better than, uh, uh, you know, better than average. So anybody else that we have not asked about that you have a strong position on or want to sort of, not, um, not so much strong position, but I, I find that the obsession with how Jordan Spieth is going to do, you know, all based on his course history, uh, and it is fascinating, but I still hear a lot of people say, well, you gotta, you know, you got to put a top 10 future on him at least. And if we're really going to talk about a guy with a stellar course history um, and is in better form than Jordan Spieth to start, I'm really surprised nobody's talking about Phil. Uh, I just think that all the breath all the and all the brain power that's being spent on whether Jordan Spieth can get his act together uh we also should be looking at Phil and and saying if you if you really want to follow a course history narrative um you know this is your guy and and when does he care i mean that's a great question you know did he, did he care at double this year um as opposed to other places he probably cared at phoenix he missed the cut um but uh you know it's it's interesting what goes through his mind and i i, I sort of feel that you know i'm not going to be surprised if if phil's in the mix no i wouldn't either i make him i i don't have value on him on futures but i make him 45 to 1 and and although i think phil sometimes cares too much that might be the problem i think he puts a lot of pressure on himself at, at augusta yeah certainly at the u.s open he has oh definitely he he, he he's he's the jim furick of, of the u.s open <laughs> Although I had Jim Furyk, I yes, I had Jim Furyk out right here at the Olympic Club in what twelve oh, uh, when, uh, when he blew that one. So uh, yeah, I, I actually had Webb. So I was uh, it oh, was okay. like one of the rare times I was pulling against Furyk. But <laughs> I've, yeah, there's there's too many heartbreaks to to want to recollect. But um, Jeff, do you have any any questions? No, I think we've gone. We've we've given we've, taken too much of Joe's time, so we can let him go and and finish this one up. I'm just glad you're not putting me through the uh, tout or no tout uh, ringer. <laughs> Joe, this has been fantastic. Like I I would I would love to just continue talking about this stuff. Like, uh, you know, I, I could do this for hours. So I'm I'm and but I won't. But I, I thank you thank you so much for for coming on. Um, your book is called a. I liked it. Joe Pita's tour guide presents a 2019 masters preview. Um, I bought it on Amazon. I'm sure, can you, you can, is there anywhere where else we can buy yep, it? Joe? Nope. Just Amazon. And obviously uh, we, you know, coming right up to the tournament, uh, it's there for digital uh, consumption as well. Oh, nice. So someone can, can use it to sort of bone up. It's, I really like it. It's got hole by hole previews. Um, it's got all the strokes gain leaderboards um, from last year and, and kind of talks about some of the narratives. Um, also, I, do you any any anywhere else we can find you, Joe? Uh, you know, I'm on Twitter uh, at MagicRatSF. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys, Thanks, and good luck this weekend. Yeah. All right, you bye -bye. too. All right, now 
I have to say that I thought that was fantastic. I, I the problem is like I, know I, just, you do. I, just, I was just geeking out on that I know, stuff. I know. You, Jeff, you, Jeff, you just kind of went into the background there and were like, okay, let's, you know. Well, I mean, I let you talk, but you realize uh, that, you know, this and the Mike, that this and the Michael Collins interview, there's a reason they're so long. <laughs> it's not, yeah. Not it's because of me. Talk a lot. It's because of you also. I know, but you know, we're, at least we're not as long as some of those other podcasts out there that, you know. Yeah, I don't know. We're bordering on it for these. So let, let's Maybe, quickly. But everybody wants the master's content. If we yeah, can everyone ever, wants everyone we wants to know what, you, what you're saying. There. They want to know why you're fading Molinari and who else you're fading. Now, what was interesting okay. is he said that fading Molinari, you're still getting good prices, but I'm looking right now at the matchups and, and I don't really feel like you're getting good prices anymore. So so what are those prices now, Jeff? Um, and I can I can tell you whether I think that you are or are not getting good prices. Okay, let's let's take uh him versus Justin Thomas. Uh Justin Thomas is minus 200. Um, hold on. Justin Thomas versus, I have to Google Justin Thomas in this doc. Um, there's so many different matchups with these guys. Just, Holy moly. Just, just, okay. Yeah. So, so okay. It, it's, it's minus 200. That's the price now. Yep. Uh, I, I make it minus 206. Actually, minus 203 after the weather effect. So Okay. What about versus Jordan Spieth? The market is minus 150 now. Against Spieth? Um, yeah, I make it minus 148. So, okay. What about minus John Ram? The market is minus 200. I love me some John Ram. Um, Lenari and Ram, gotta pull that up. Market's minus, I make that minus 212. Right. So, all these lines have just moved basically to your numbers. And it's interesting that he said that you're getting some good value. And my guess is that he hasn't looked at these since since these lines have moved because they've, they've moved substantially, um, obviously. And fading Molinari, you're going to need them to come back, uh, well, the numbers to come back for it to be a good strategy at this point. Joe could have, could have been, it could have been me and Joe behind moving those numbers. It's possible, but like, who's another guy that you like, that you want to fade going into this weekend? Um, Rochambeau. Rochambeau. <laughs> right, so let's look at, let's look at someone like Kepka versus, Bryson DeChambeau. What do you make that? Kepka against DeChambeau. Hold on. Where is he? I don't think I had an edge there. Maybe. Wait, let me see. Well, you definitely don't have an edge now if you didn't have an edge before. That would be my guess. Yeah, I didn't have an edge. I, I made Kepka minus 123. Yeah, so it's How about Ricky versus okay. DeChambeau? R- Ricky's a fair one. Um, Ricky, I made Ricky minus 164. So he's minus 180 now. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, but I, I don't think, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have anything. I never had any, any value there at all. So I don't know what it opened at. So what I think is crazy about this and the, you know, the fact that the matchups move so much based on sort of like, I think the action um, that you or, or Joe Pita or whomever else. Or, is, or is other people. In. Yeah, sure. Um, in these situations that they move all these matchups, but then if you look at the futures, the futures aren't moved, right? So Molinari is still plus two, two, 2,600, right? Which makes him much higher rated relative to where he sits in matchups. It's true. And I think a lot of people look at, uh, but I, I tend to think that the matchup market is a lot more efficient than the outright market because the matchup market's a true two, two-sided market. Um, yeah, but theoretically, you, you theoretically, you should fair. be able to right. look at theoretically, you should fair. be able to look at the 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 outrights and more or less use those as a guide 
to what the matchups look like, right? Well, I think sometimes the matchups are initially priced based off of those outrights, which I think can be sometimes wrong because um, it, it's, you know, there's some guys are higher variance than others, you know, like there are guys like Furick who is never going to be priced that high in terms of outrights, but he's someone that's consistent and tends to, and in matchups, matchups reward consistency, at least if you're a good golfer, right? I mean, if you're the under, if you're the underdog, you want more variance. If you're the favorite, you want less variance. Sure. So what about, so is, are there any things that any outrights that you think have some value right now? I mean, we got to try to give our listeners some value. You know, we've made them listen to, too long interviews with with different guys so we want some rufus we want some rufus value okay so why don't we jeff do you have the odds in front of you i do where where are we quoting it's from it's from chris betfair chris Chris? Chris. okay so let's um so i'll I'll tell you some guys that i targeted um i had justin rose well what is the current price on on j rose to win to win he is plus a thousand he is plus a thousand. Okay, there's no value there, but I, I, I thought he opened a little bit higher. Um, I think he was I, like plus twelve hundred or something like that. Yeah, I make him twelve to one. You might be able to do better there on Betfair if you're living outside the U.S. and have a Betfair account. Um, but or any any I mean I don't know what Pinnacle has either or any of these books. I, you know, I, like you know DraftKings or whatever or how much they're taking but um okay so Justin Rose if you can get 14 to 1 I think that's that's a good play um I'll tell you one guy that I do have value on who uh, you know I, I'm a little more hesitant playing him in so many matchups even though I am um just because because of the injury question marks and and um because like cuz basically there's a ton of downside right he could he could be injured and be an awful value or he could be full strength um and have high upside. And so, um, I like Jason day to win. I think he was 30 to one at one point. I make him 21 to one. What is he now? He's 22, 32, 22, 32. And I bet if you price shop, you can get better than that. Um, another guy I, I like is Hideki Matsuyama at, um, I get, what's the price now? Let's see. Matsuyama is 28 to one. Ah, Damn, uh, at twenty nine to one, um, that's what I make him. Um, I thought he was. I think he opened in the mid thirties, but and you go know, further down to long shots. Um, Poulter, if you can get ninety to one, um, I think there's he's, value he's there. On, he's only sixty five to one. Man, okay. So some of these guys. Okay, so I haven't updated this since like you know, um, since yesterday morning in terms of the actual odds. I mean, you basically destroy any value on these. Things. Well, it's, it's probably, it's not just me. I'm guessing like when somebody's undervalued, I think it's, um, you know, I'm not the only one that can see those. Yeah. Things. But I, I do think that you have a big impact on this market and it's, it's pretty interesting um, to see, see that impact. I mean, I think it's very, it's very impressive. I mean, I think you should, revel in the fact that that you you have this amount of uh of, of ability are there any like interesting to make or miss the cut kind of bets i know that you typically like to do those and i think those yeah. are pretty fun so in general like um i have a lot of miscuts on some of these guys like um someone was telling me DraftKings had rory at minus 2500 to make it i don't know what the other side was probably like plus 700 but um you know i make rory 90 i make him minus 1100 to make the cut. Um, but to be honest, I mean, so, so if you can get basically some of the big prices, if, um, 
on on some of these guys to miss like you know getting more than five to one on well i think um more more than five well i make kepka five to one to miss the cut so if you can get higher than that um i make kuchar basically plus 450 to make it or to miss it or to miss the cut so if you can get higher than that i mean d shambell i make him four to one against it'd be fun to root against kuchar at this point right yeah i mean you're going against the narrative i mean and so yeah, I mean, I always tend to have some of these like. How about Patrick Reed? What do you make How about Patrick Reed? Like, I kind of like the narrative of fading Patrick Reed because, you know, he, he won last year. There's some recency bias there. What do you, What do you yeah. have him to make the cut? You know, he, yes, he won last year, but he doesn't seem the market doesn't seem that far off on him. Um, I make him my, 340, but I, I just he's not one of these favorites. I mean, I, I he is the, I guess in my. Augusta power ratings in terms of just looking in terms of miscut probabilities. He is number um, 26. So, I mean, he's, he's sandwiched between Webb Simpson and Sergio Garcia, but the interesting thing this year to me is I remember when I, when I looked on Monday morning, might've been Sunday night at Betfair, actually Sunday, um, just, I mean, as a U.S. citizen, like I, I, I can't use Betfair, but like I am able to sort of, you can, anybody can look at the site and see what the odds are. And so, and, and see what the market has and, you know, what the volume is on each side. And, and, and so um, at that time I showed value on basically every guy, every favorite, like all the guys in the top, like five, the top five golfers, like basically on a little bit on Rory, who I think at the time was like maybe nine to one there um, a little bit on Dustin, like not huge edges, but, but it made me think that, Overall, um, I think that more than other years, this year, the sort of top group has really distinguished themselves. And I think that there is uh, a much bigger spread. And you have a lot more golfers that, like, I, I only have, um, let's see, only 57 golfers have better or, or better than 1,000 a, a to 1 to win. I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of guys at the top who have a chance, but it drops off a lot more quickly like and there's i think the the sort of there's a lot uh the, i don't want to say the second tier maybe almost the third tier the sort of guys that are outside the top 50 in the world golf rankings but won events last year um you know aaron wise is of the world the you know lucas beer well lucas beer got somehow top 50 but um you you have a lot of sort of weaker guys there adam long you know Patton kazir kaziri kazire andrew landry um, some sort of, I don't want to say fluke winners, but but guys that kind of bring down the quality of the field, I think, a little bit. And so I actually looked because I was concerned. I was like, why am I so high on these favorites? I'm never that high on the favorites. And I basically looked and and if I had modeled it the same way I modeled it a few years ago, um, which I looked at, like in 2017, I had a great year on the Masters. Um, I was like, what if I use the exact same weightings and the same regression stuff as I did then with the current data? Would it look any different than what my what I have my model has now? And basically, not really in terms of spread. It's it's just one of those things that's unique this year with with just the way that just the top golfers are all in much better form. I think that's that's what's doing it. So, um, so I'm going to probably be rooting for some of the top guys this year, which is an unusual thing. That's good to hear. Um, okay, so how about Finau? Who's fifty to one? That was the subject of of the Joe Pita interview. What do you make him? So I make Finau. Um, I'm well. No, he he's thirty or something to one. But I make him. No, he's, uh, he's fifty, 50 to one. one. He's. 50 I make to him one. fifty to one. 
He's 50 I'm to one at, at the numbers. He's 50 to one. Oh man. So that opened at 30. So I guess he, but he did have a bad Sunday. So um, yeah, I, I make him 49.95 to one to be exact. So, so there's value at 50 to one. There is technically value. The thing with the and, futures, you know, right? Though, is like the edge of zero point. This needs to autofill zero point one percent. So to to Joe Pita's point, it's so hard to find value in the outrights that, like, if you if I find a, an outright that that is like somewhat fair value, and I just want to have something riding on it, I think it's it's fun to bet. So I, I do think though that normally I have more value on sort of like some of the guys further down. Um, guys in the hundred to one range, but this year is a notable exception. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you make? What do you make Stenson? Stenson, I'm not. I, I was a big fader of Stenson last year. Um, no, I remember. I, I'm kind of low. I'm not high on him this year either. Um, you know, one eighty-eight to one. And so we had Michael Collins on on Sunday, and he mentioned something about because um, we were talking about putting and how on the first our first uh, podcast with the masters, but um, he said, basically being an aggressive putter is what you need to, you need to be an aggressive putter to putt well at Augusta. Um, because I had said it's, it's hard to predict putting at Augusta based on your normal putting stats, um, strokes gained, putting in other courses. Um, and, and Stenson is, and I actually went through and I was like, I want to, I wanted to sort of quantify that and sort of, so I looked through the strokes gained and basically looked at, um, how, what percentage of guys or what percentage of guys putts were short of the hole, like on putts five feet or longer and also average, um, distance, you know, past the hole on a putt that was missed, um, just to get a sense of that. And basically looked at each guy for, for each year and basically created a little prediction based on the you know previous few years and, and to sort of see if it had actually any predictive value. And, you know, it did, it, it actually does have like, so, so, um, I, I, I thought that was so cool because it was a way like Michael was, you know, something that he had observed, um, you know, I was able to sort of try to, to test empirically and I found that it, it did hold up and, and Stenson is one of the guys that is most penalized for that. He is, uh, cause he's, I mean, I, I've bet on him enough and watched him play. Like, you know, if there's a 20 foot putt, he normally puts it like, 18 and a half feet. You know what they say about putts that are short of the hole? They never go in. They never go in. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly high in Stenson. All right, well, let's finish up. We've given the people lots of, lots do of content. Want, do we want any other, any other names? Well, I mean, there's not a lot of value left, I'm guessing. So if you want to give us some names, that's great, but we can see if they have any value. Okay. Um, I, I'm only gonna. I'm, I'm gonna react to any names you give me. I'm not. I'm not gonna volunteer a name unless it's presented to me. How about JB Holmes? What do you make him? JB Holmes, uh, two forty-five to one. Yeah, so and by the way, DeChambeau, who I'm low on, I make him forty-nine to one. So I still have him. Like, you know, he's he's in the how about, Tommy. How about Cantlay? You talked a little bit about. Cantlay. I guess I guess I'm low on Fleetwood. If I only have Fleetwood at fifty to one, Fleetwood's a very consistent golfer, despite the fact that he seems to like go low whenever he's like, he seems to have these really low rounds when he's out of contention that brings him back into contention, but um, can't. And, and if he does well, then he has these poor rounds. If he's in contention to put him out of contention. So um, can't lay. Uh, I'm, you know, I'd make him 82 to one. I think I probably, I think I may have him some matchups. 
I like him. He's a he's Cantley is very solid, um, very solid player overall. But looking at uh, his numbers, he's he's one of those iron players that um, hasn't. Wait, what's his course history? I almost said something about him to Joe. Um, yeah, he hasn't performed well in his career at the Masters. I have him as four point three strokes worse than expectation um, career, and he's a guy that's you know he's solid off the tee and solid on, in terms of um, with his irons, but like near the top and both in terms of strokes gained. But but uh, not a great putter, and you know not he's okay, a little above average uh, around the green. So um, he is a guy that if, if it wasn't for his bad course history. I would have him higher, but you know, he doesn't have a ton of course history though. So I think, you know, I do think that there is some upside there. I think he's a good fit basically for the course is what I'm saying. Got it. All right. I think that's good. Let's finish this off. We're going to give them about an hour and 15 minutes of content for a masters after following up our long one. So thanks. Uh, I think, you know, Rufus give us, gave us some value. So if you shop around, maybe you can get some of these guys in futures and, Maybe if Molinari and DeChambeau came back, you can fade them because they seem like the two players we want to fade this this year. Um, and uh, with that, let's everyone have a happy Masters. Yeah, and I want to say that I think a lot of times when these lines move, I do think there will be some bounce back. I think you'll be getting more public action on Wednesday. So um, I think there may be more opportunities to fade those guys. But if you have a question about any golfer, um, you know, where I see them, just shoot me a, like, you know, tweet it out to me or something and, and I'll try to get to it. All right. Uh, have a good week and we'll see, see you guys in a couple weeks. numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a lettuce.